So 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, and we're going to be talking about hope. Hope is a very important thing for just a person in general, but it's even more important for us as Christians, something that we need to understand, that we need to live by uh, and believe. Uh, as Christians, we have a hope that is sure, that is real. Um, so uh, the Bible, it talks about hope a lot. All throughout scripture, we see the idea of hope or we see hope uh, in its real form. Uh, a biblical hope has a foundation of faith in God. Okay. And the word hope that we use in our English language, it often conveys uh, doubt, right? Or uh, it's a type of wishful thinking. So for instance, like this morning, Patrick looked over me, at me and he's like, I, I, I hope we have enough uh, communion elements. And I said, I'm, I'm pretty sure we do. And then after a second, I was like, I kind of doubted myself. I was like, I hope so, right? So it's a type of wishful thinking. It's, uh, it conveys doubt. That's the type of hope that the world uses. That's the type of hope that we kind of use in our English language. But that's not the same hope that we find in the Word of God. That's not the same hope that God has given you and I. And that's not the same hope that Peter is going to show us this morning in verses 3 through 5. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word bata, its, it cognate, its cognates has the meaning of confidence, security, and being without care. Therefore, the concept of doubt is not part of this word. And we find that meaning, we find it in Job 6, in Psalm 16, Psalm 22, and Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Now, in most instances in the New Testament, the word hope is the Greek word elpis, and again, there's no doubt attached to this word. Therefore, biblical hope, the hope that we find in the word of God, is a confident expectation or an assurance based upon a sure foundation for which we wait with joy and full confidence. In other words, there's no doubt about it. Right? That's the type of hope that you and I have. Biblical hope is a reality. It's not a feeling. Biblical hope carries no doubt. Biblical hope is a sure foundation upon which we base our lives, believing that God will be faithful always to keep his promises. Now, without hope, what's the point of life? Right? Without hope, life has no meaning. It loses its meaning. We even see that uh, scripture telling us in Lamentations chapter 3 and Job chapter 7. And in death, there is no hope. Now, today we're going to be going to learn, we're going to be learning about uh, the type of hope that God has given us through our salvation, that we have been born again into a living hope. And an understanding of this living hope is going to help us as Christians who are considered pilgrims, which we studied last week. That was our focus, that this life is not our best life now, right? It is to come because this is not our home. We are just passing through right? Death is not the end. Death is just basically the means of being with the Lord. To be absent in this body is to be present with God. So an understanding of this living hope that Peter's going to share with us this morning is going to help you and I as Christians to be more joyful, to be more confident, and to endure through this life. Now this morning I was watching on Instagram a pastor who's, who's pretty famous, and he, and he was talking about you know, God wants the best for you, right? Like God wants you to have the best of friends and the best job and the best of this and that. 
And it sounded good. And it sounded like, well, yeah, that's like, that sounds like a loving God, right? But God is not so much in it for you to have the best of everything now. As we're going to find out this morning, that God is in it for you to have the best of everything in the life to come. The life that is eternal, the life that is with him, right? He's going to tell us in chapter, uh, or in verse 4, he says, There is an inheritance that's incorruptible, it's undefiled, and it does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. It's not here on earth, guys. Like, God does not promise us the best life. God does not promise us an easy life. God's not always going to give you the best job or the best position. He's not always going to give you the best grades or uh, being able to get into the best college. He's not going to give you the best of friends or even the best family, right? God has not promised that. If, God, if that was God's promise, then he would not be faithful. Because look at the situations that a lot of Christians are in. That's, God, that's not God's promise. God's promise is, yes, to be there with us. Yes, he can give us joy in the midst of hardships, in the midst of trials. Yes, he can give us a, a hope and an assurance of things to come. Yes, he can protect us. Yes, he can provide for us. But it's not always going to be the best. Can he give us the best? Of course he can. But that's not his promise. Now, his promise is that we will get the best to come. So verse 3, let's read it. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be to be revealed in the last time now if we were to only look at things on a strictly human level it would become really easy for us to lose hope you know we look at everything that is happening in the world it would be very easy to lose hope if my foundation and my faith were not in God. Our hope isn't based on trials or problems and difficulties that we see on the human level. Our hope stands out as a living hope, something that is real, something that is alive. It's one that when we have our hearts and minds, minds properly oriented to it, it will make what uh, 1 Peter 3.15 says happen, right? And that says, but sanctify the Lord your God, the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. So what does Peter tell us about this living hope? It's going to be very simple for us to break down because of the way that Peter structures this sentence, starting in verse 3. What is he going to tell us about this living hope? First, he tells us this. That it comes from who? God the Father, right? In verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope. So it comes from God the Father. It's from him that we have our living hope. Our hope does not come from other people. It doesn't come from circumstances. It doesn't come uh, from anything that is created from this earth. And therefore, it cannot fail. It's not a hope where I, I hope so. It doesn't have doubt attached to it. It's something that is fir firm. It's something that is real. It's something that will come to fruition. It cannot fail. 
Our hope is as sure and as certain and as unfailing and as living as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has given this hope to us. And as Paul even wrote in Romans 8, 31 through 32, he says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? God has given us a lot, and he has prepared a lot. And he freely gives us the things that we need. Now you might be thinking, well, it's wonderful to have a hope that is sure and certain because uh, it comes from such a great God, but we might not be so sure of it personally because of what we know about ourselves. You might be thinking, well, okay, uh, if I look back upon my life, I see what an imperfect person I am, what a sinner that I am, what a messed up person that I am, and you're spot on. Don't ever think you are any better than, what, than that. You and I are sinners. We have failed. We should consider ourselves the chief of sinners. But the beauty of that is once we realize that, we can turn to our Savior, who then claims and gives us, as Paul says, he shows us that our hope from God is one that is based on what? His abundant mercy. His abundant mercy. The basis for our hope lies in the abundance of God's mercy. Mercy was bestowed to us while we were yet still sinners. Mercy was bestowed upon the conditions of faith and repentance, right? So you, when you and I put our faith in Christ and we repent, we receive this free mercy. Now, mercy, too, is bestowed upon us continually as Christians as we continually repent and confess our sins. We see that in 1 John 1, 9. If we ever, if ever there was someone who could speak about this, it could be, it would be Peter, right? Because Peter, or Paul even, but right now we're, we're talking about Peter because, because Peter wrote this book. Peter was one who failed miserably, right? He was the one who was gung-ho and said, Lord, I will never forsake you. And then boom, he did it three times, right? The first time I believe was he denied Jesus in front of a young girl and even cursed and said, I don't even know this man. So he failed Jesus, right? He was a sinner, just like you and I. But then came God's abundant mercy. Then came the forgiveness from Jesus Christ, who then restored, restored Peter. And then we see what came from Peter's life after that restoration, after that abundant mercy was given to him. Peter lived the rest of his life with a sense of how unworthy he was of the hope he enjoyed. He was unworthy of the mercy he was given. But just because he was unworthy doesn't mean he didn't receive it. God gives freely to those who repent and seek him. And that's exactly what Peter did. And that's exactly as you and I, if we're considered followers of Christ, we have done and we will continually do. We have to live our lives understanding that we are not worthy of his mercy which then gives me hope, which then gives me hope. There's no amount of sin that we could ever be guilty of that can be greater than the grace and mercy of God to forgive and restore us. But here's the kicker. You have to know that you sin. You have to know that you are a sinner. And then here's the second kicker. You have to confess. 
you have to admit it. It's not good enough to just hide it under the rug. It's not good enough to not admit it. We have to confess and we have to admit it, even though God already knows. And so often I think we we try to pretend like, well, it's not that bad, or, you know, other people did it, or, you know, God's grace will just cover anything. Those are not right concepts. You and I are to realize that we have sinned a holy and perfect God, and we are to confess and admit and to seek repentance because there it shows where our heart lies. It's either about us or it's about Him. And if we confess and we repent, we know that it's about Him and that we want and we desire His mercy and His forgiveness. So we are unworthy, but He has made us worthy when He took our place on the cross for us. We can come to God as we are, as fallen sinners with simple faith in Christ, and we can rejoice in this living hope. But notice that when we come to him, God doesn't leave us where we are, right? We come to him as sinners. We come to him in sin. We come to him with these struggles that we have. He doesn't say, just say, I forgive you, and then good luck, right? No, John tells us that we receive grace upon grace upon grace, that we need God daily. That this grace is more than just a forgiveness. It's an empowerment to walk in the spirit so that we don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. He utterly transforms you. He creates you into a new person. You become a new creation in him, in Christ Jesus. And then we become sons and daughters of him. And Peter's going to go on. He's going to let us know that this living hope is one which he has begotten us again, which we see here in verse 3 according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope. The word that Peter uses here is one that that means to be uh, begotten or born a second time. Kind of like born again, right? To be born again. Now, none of us can enjoy this kind of hope that Peter describes in this passage that we're studying unless we are truly born again by God's grace. And I don't have time to fully get into that concept, which I I hope and I believe that you guys have heard as we've been studying throughout Scripture is something that we've expressed uh, pretty clearly. But if you need to understand more, look at John chapter 3 where Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he asks him, how do I enter the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, well, you must be born again. And Nicodemus is like, well, I can't go back in my mother's womb. I'm like 40-something years old, right? Like, how does that happen? Well, Jesus was talking about a spiritual thing, right? Backing up scripture from 2 Corinthians 5.17, where it talks about us being new creations and the old has passed away, that we have been born again in Christ Jesus, that we have been adopted into his family, that now I am a new person, that I have now received the Holy Spirit and I don't walk in the ways that I used to walk, right? So we can only receive this living hope by being born again by receiving the mercy of Christ. Now, how can we be certain of all this? How can we be sure that we're not simply making up, you know, an imaginary hope for ourselves? Well, here's the kicker. Paul's, or Peter's going to explain to us. We can be sure because our hope is based on something real. It's not something made up. It's not a mere abstraction. It's not something imaginary. It's something of sub- substance, something that's based on an actual literal, historical, eyewitness event that occurred here on earth. 
right? Just like we believe the things that are taught us in school with history, this same history, not the same history, but history that right now that we're reading has occurred and eyewitnesses have backed it up. Just like we receive every other history that we study, it's all from eyewitnesses. It's all from people who have encountered what had happened and have either passed it on by what they've said or what they've written. The same thing that we have here. Something that happened on earth, it was Jesus who died. And just as importantly, if not more importantly, what did he do? I mean, the next verse, this continuing of the verse shows us, right? Is begotten us again to a living hope through what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There's our proof that this living hope is real. Because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. You believe all these other things happened in our history. The same thing historically happened. That Jesus Christ rose from the dead. That there were plenty of eyewitnesses. There were over a hundred eyewitnesses that saw Jesus who had died, who was put into the tomb and then no longer in the tomb, who to the 12 disciples or the 11 at the time, because Judas obviously wasn't there, walked through the door, freaked the disciples out. They believed. And then we saw Thomas who then believed too, because Jesus showed him the scars. Then Jesus revealed himself to some women and to some other people. And it's these people who died because of the witness that they saw of Jesus Christ being resurrected. Everything became real to them. Everything like that. How do you think the first church started? It was with these eyewitnesses, with, with these apostles, with these disciples. They're the ones who started. And it's even, it's, it's real in a sense too because we now have been given the Holy Spirit. But I'm talking about something that was physically seen, something that was real. Not that the Holy Spirit's not real, but I'm talking about something that we can see. And so they saw the resurrected Jesus. The Bible makes it very clear that without the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead, we have no hope whatsoever. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 14 through 19, he says, If Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen, and if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. And Paul immediately goes on to say in verse 20, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The fact that Jesus not only died for us, but also rose from the dead is the thing that makes sure to us that our hope is living, that it is real, because Jesus is alive. The resurrection of Jesus is crucial to our hope. If Christ is not risen, then the apostles were liars and our faith is in vain. If Christ is not risen, we are still held guilty for our sins and no forgiveness has occurred. If Christ is not risen, then those who have died as Christians have perished and they are lost. And if Christ is not risen, then we do not have a living hope. Instead, we are to be pitied by others. But Christ has risen. So our hope is certain. It is real. It's one that comes to us 
from no one less than God the Father himself, one that is based on his abundant mercy, one to which he has caused us to be born again, one that has been proven to be absolutely unfailingly sure to us by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now look at what Peter is going to say about this hope itself. He lets us know that it is one that cannot be lost in verse 4. He says that God has begotten us again to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away and is reserved in heaven for you. Now when someone receives an inheritance, has anybody ever received an inheritance? No? Okay. Me neither. When someone receives an inheritance, two things have to be true. One, the person who receives it must actually be qualified to receive it, right? Like typically you're in a will. The recipient of an inheritance must be a true son or daughter, meeting the conditions necessary to receive such an inheritance. And that's what we are, right? We were born again. We have been adopted as Ephesians chapter one tells us we have been adopted into uh, the family of Christ. And now we are then the sons and daughters of Christ. We are not the sons of God and the daughters of God until we have been adopted into his family. And the only way we're adopted into his family is to be born again through salvation, which comes to us by grace through faith. Just because you have been born a human being does not mean that you are a son and daughter of God. It means that you have to be born again. There has to be confession and repentance and salvation for you to enter into the kingdom of God because then you are a child of God. So that's the first condition, which we meet, right? Because now we are children of God, so we will receive this inheritance that our Father has waiting for us. Now, the second condition is that the inheritance must be uh, willingly given to the qualified son or daughter by someone who is actually qualified to give it. And I don't know anybody more qualified than God himself, right? That is who our Father in heaven is. He is qualified. Now, let's look at this. With our, with our inheritance that we're receiving, I want to look at a few things. One, it's incorruptible, right? It's incorruptible. If you look at everything in this room, everything in this room is corruptible, right? Every single thing. Every single thing that's at your house and every single thing that you own, right, is, is corruptible. The word here is apartheidos, meaning not liable to corruption or decay, or imperishable. And unlike this present earth in which we now live, which will one day be destroyed, right? Everything. We see that in 2 Peter chapter 3. The second thing that Peter tells us about this inheritance and that it's undefiled, and the Greek word is amianteos, meaning not defiled, unsoiled. It is unlike the earthly uh, world which could be and was defiled by its inhabitants. And our hope pertains to that where the defiled are not allowed to enter. The third thing about this inheritance is that it does not fade away. And the Greek word here is armenteos, meaning unfading perennial. The word is a variation of armanth, which was the name of a mythical flower whose bloom was perpetual and whose loveliness never faded. And such is our heavenly reward. It will not rust, it will not fade, it will not wither like so many things here will on earth. And the fourth thing that we see in verse 4 about our inheritance 
is that it's reserved in heaven. It's not here. It's not here. For those of us who love this life, this stinks because we love and we desire and we strive for the things of this life and the things of this world. But for those of us that don't love this life, we realize that our inheritance and the good things to come are waiting for us. The word reserved comes from terio, meaning to watch, to observe, to guard, protect, to reserve, to set aside. Therefore, our inheritance as children of God is safely guarded in heaven itself. No one, not even Satan himself, can steal it from us. No one. How awesome is this hope that we have been given? Again, it's a hope that doesn't have doubt. It's not a wishful thinking. It is certain. It is real. It is something that will give you joy in the midst of this life, no matter what you go through. Because people will fail you. Your dreams will fail you. Pretty much everything is going to fail you at one point or another. It will not live up to the expectation or the desire that you want. But God and his word will never fail. And if he's telling us in his word that he has this incorruptible inheritance reserved for us in heaven, then that's true. It's real. It's there. It's something that will never pass. It's something that will never fade. It's something that nobody can ever take from us. It is, gives us this hope to continue as sojourners and as pilgrims in this life. And people are going to ask you, as this world gets crazier, and if you continue to live like you have a hope in Christ, they're going to ask you why. And then Peter tells us again in chapter 3 that you then will be ready to give defense of why you have the hope that you do. Because it's all about Jesus. It's all about the things that he has for us and he has prepared for us. Since this is the nature of our inheritance upon which our hope rests, we can see why our hope is described as a living hope. Now there's one more reason to call our hope a living hope. Not only is our inheritance safely guarded in heaven, but in verse 5, we also are safely guarded says in verse 5, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Christians, the children of God, are kept for the salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The word kept is uh, from fro rio. <laughs> I'm not the best at speaking Greek, so bear with me. But it's a military term. And it means to guard or protect by a military guard, either to prevent hostile invasion or to keep the inhabitants of a besieged city from flight. Now note that being kept involves two things. First, it's from the power of God himself. We have the help from God himself. He supplies even the armor necessary to withstand the devil in the last days, in the evil days. We saw that in Ephesians chapter 6. But the second thing that is involved with this word kept is our faith. It's our faith. To be safely guarded by God's protective care requires faith on our part. And faith and hope go hand in hand. They go together. They walk together. We look at Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 which says what? Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things unseen. They go together. So we have this living hope that we have been given 
by Christ. There's a story of a man a few centuries ago who was riding his wagon into a city on a rainy day. And he was on his way to receive a rich inheritance that had been left to him. But he was a poor man, and he had broken down, and he had a broken down old wagon. And along the way, only about a mile away from town, the wagon slipped in the mud into a ditch and broke a wheel. And the poor man was angry and he was frustrated. He was wet, he was tired, he was cold. And now he had to walk a whole mile into town by foot. But along the way, he began to laugh. He had forgotten what he was going into town for. He was on his way to receive an inheritance that was so great he could buy a hundred wagons if he wanted to. Why would a mere one mile walk in the mud and rain bother him? That's you and me, guys, if we're in Christ. That what is this blip in the midst of eternity? What is, there is no comparison. We have this hope. It gives us a joy. It gives us uh, a confidence to continue on in this life no matter the circumstances. Because you and I have not been promised the best life. And I hate that there's many people out there deceiving people who are telling them that it's about you, that you have this best life now, that you're going to gain, that, that God's with you, that God loves you, which he does, but God's love doesn't equate to you having the best of jobs and you know the best of finances and the best of families and the best of relationships. It's not the promise at all. But God's love can give us a hope and God's love can give us a joy in the midst of of this life that we're in. So, and as we're walking this one mile trek of this life, as we're pilgrims, we realize that we too can laugh and we can have fun and we can have joy and we can have peace because we know of the hope that is set before us. Because we know that there is an inheritance that's incorruptible, that it's unfading, that nobody can touch it, and that you and I are kept by the power of God through faith. I don't know any better message than that, which obviously equates the gospel message. Because we can only receive this through the gospel. Now we're on our way to receive a rich, eternal inheritance. And as Paul wrote in Romans 8.18, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. We have to have a loose grip on this world, guys. We do, or we will go down with it. And we have to realize, too, that Jesus is coming back any moment. And as Pastor Kevin keeps saying, as he's teaching through Revelation, that it's not something to fear, it's something to look forward to. As the Bible tells us, to look forward to the coming of the Lord. That's why we take communion. Every day, we should be looking for the coming of the Lord because that is something that should give us a hope and an enjoyment of knowing that, man, this life sucks. I just want to be with you, God. And don't get me wrong, like, this life doesn't suck. I, I, let me explain it this way. This life sucks, and it doesn't suck at the same time. That's probably not a good word to use. This life stinks, and it, it, it doesn't stink at the same time, right? Like, there, that's why there's this pull. That's why there's this draw to it. But at the same time, 
the more that we know Jesus and the, more, the closer that we are to him, we realize, man, this life really isn't the best life. This life has no draw anymore. Like, who cares if I get that job or not? Who cares how, you know, people perceive me, whether they like me or not, or if I become famous or not, or rich or not? Who cares? I don't want that getting in the way and wedging my relationship with Christ, who has already, as a good father, who knows how to give good gifts, and he knows, God knows, that even sometimes our, our earthly fathers can give good gifts. How much more can our Father in heaven, who is perfect, who is just, who is all-loving, give better gifts? So he has prepared the best for us. He's prepared an, an inheritance for us. And if you look in uh, Ephesians chapter 1, he talks about all the spiritual blessings that we receive. He's given us so much. Look, if he had just given us mercy and grace, that'd be enough. If he had just forgiven us of our sins and allowed us to somewhat be in his presence in heaven, that would be good enough for me. But he's given us so much more, so much more. And he has given us everything that we need to live a life of godliness here on earth. And people want money, they want fame, they want this. The last thing they want is godliness. And Peter's gonna tell us in a little while that you and I have been given everything that we need to walk a life of godliness. Like that, that's like not like something that's enticing, you know, to people all the time. Like I want to hear that, you know, God is going to give me this and that and the things that I want. I'm not really here to tell me that, you know, I want, you know, that you're going to give me godliness. <laughs> you know, that, that you're going to give me holiness. Like that's okay. But that's what God promises. And if God is God, then he knows what's best for us. And he knows that it's better than, a, you know, the new Xbox or the PS5 that's coming out or, you know, the perfect college that you wanted to get into or, you know, this or that. So you and I, we've been born again into a living hope, one that comes from God by his abundant mercy, one that has begotten us again one that has made us sure by Jesus' own resurrection and one that cannot be lost to us or we to it and one that is ready and waiting for us even right now. So be like the poor old man that was walking down the road with his broken old wagon, laughing and enjoying not the life because of what it had to offer but because he knew what was to come the living hope that was in him.